Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. Each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome back to the As A Woman podcast. Today, we are talking about miscarriage and what happens next. What do you need to know if you have that ultrasound that I've been there for and which things don't look like they should? What comes next? What are your options? What happens after? What do you need to do? If you are new to the As A Woman podcast, I just want to say thank you so much for being here. This podcast has been just such a wonderful community and an opportunity for me to share with all of you things that I've learned, things that I wish my patients were able to know, and just help spread good evidence-based information. At the end of every episode, I do answer questions for fertility's sake. This is a weekly segment where you submit questions and I answer them. You can submit questions on Instagram Mondays at Natalie Crawford MD. These questions will be answered on Instagram, here on the pod, or on the newsletter. The newsletter also has updates, my favorite recipes, products, but also I answer fertility questions and talk about the latest updates and fertility in the news. If you want to sign up for the newsletter, go to nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter and just fill out the question box and we will be able to give you the weekly update. And I promise it's not spam. It's just to keep you up to date. So if you don't know part of my story, we started trying to get pregnant when I was a resident and I did OBGYN residency, which was four years. I actually did a year of emergency medicine after medical school. So I matched into emergency medicine and I'm a planner. So I had this great life plan of having a three-year long residency and then I'd be done and we'd be able to have our nice big family and no worries and no problems. Well, when I realized during my ER year that I no longer wanted to do emergency medicine anymore and that my real passion was with women's health, I switched, but I completed out that first year. And there's a lot that goes into the story that I've talked about in prior episodes, but essentially I wanted to have a stronger connection with patients. Nothing about the ER is bad. It's a fabulous, amazing job. And I swear the best people work there. But it just wasn't the right fit for me, and I knew it. I loved it in medical school, but as a resident, as the person in charge, I wanted to be able to see somebody through a problem. And that is why ultimately I switched into OBGYN. So I did that one year of ER, and I could have done just two more years and been done. But instead, I tacked four extra years on to do OBGYN, and then I did three additional years of fellowship. So I took what would have been three years of training after medical school, 
and made it eight. So a substantially longer period of time. It almost is hard to say that out loud, but I love being a fertility doctor and this is the best job. So it ultimately led me right where I needed to be. When we were trying to have a family in residency is very hard. And the end result is that we had four pregnancy losses before we have our two kids. So our children were my pregnancies five and six, and I had three miscarriages and then an ectopic pregnancy before we had Campbell and then Rhett. So I remember going through these moments and having these appointments or being in that position where I just didn't know what the next thing was. I didn't even know what to expect. And even as an OBGYN, I was searching the internet, trying to find people in my shoes or somebody to help me understand what I needed to know at that moment. So if you've gone through a miscarriage or you are late to some of the things I'm saying, I am just sending you a huge hug because it stinks. It really stinks. There's no words for it. Such an emotional roller coaster. And the one thing that my doctor told me at the time, which just stuck with me, was don't let this consume your entire story. This is just one chapter. Stories have lots of chapters and going through this will make sense in the future. And I tell patients that all the time. All right, so let's talk through a normal pregnancy a little bit so we can talk about what is normal, what happens during different phases of a miscarriage, what your management and treatment options are, and what it is I want you to know about that recovery phase. So let's just remember In the menstrual cycle, you have a follicle that starts growing during the follicular phase. That follicle gets bigger as the egg matures, and as that egg matures, it makes estrogen, which grows the lining of the uterus. When that egg is mature enough, it will signal to the brain to release the LH surge, which is what induces final maturation of the egg and subsequently ovulation. So this whole process of ovulation is very dependent upon your brain and your ovary being in communication. And failures at different parts of this process can cause varying degrees of ovulatory dysfunction. I do like the word ovulatory dysfunction because a lot of times we use anovulation or no ovulation, but I do see some people who are ovulating. It's just not a consistently regular pattern or they're having a short luteal phase and those things may have an impact on their ability to get pregnant. But ultimately, you need the brain and ovaries to be communicating. So that LH surge is what you can detect on an ovulation predictor kit or an OPK. Those are one of the urinary kits you can buy over the counter if you're trying to get pregnant. And you should start taking them at the beginning of your fertile window, which is about five days before you think you're going to ovulate. When you use an OPK, you do need to have urine that is from the later morning to early afternoon. And that's because LH is released from the brain in the early morning hours. And so that LH has to get processed through your kidneys and be in your urine so that you're able to detect it. So I just want you to know that you need to be not taking them at your first morning urine. And if you take an OPK every day consistently, the day you see the positive is the day of the LH surge. And that is the day before you ovulate. Now, Once you ovulate, the follicle that grew the egg is now going to transition into the corpus luteum. And this corpus luteum is so vital for implantation. The corpus luteum is what makes progesterone. Nothing else makes progesterone. 
ever except the placenta. But this is what in the human makes progesterone. So the corpus luteum in the luteal phase, which is the phase from after ovulation until your next period, is secreted from the corpus luteum in pulses in response to the LH pulses from the brain. So if we think about the luteal phase, you get a big LH surge. That's your peak, which triggers ovulation. And then that pituitary gland is sending out peaks and troughs, pulses of LH, and that is going to correlate with rising and falling progesterone throughout the luteal phase. And we know this because very good studies have shown that your progesterone level may vary anywhere from 3 to 40 in the luteal phase, and they're all perfectly normal and average. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside, enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual multivitamin every day because it is easy to take, and I know that I am getting high-quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune, and luckily I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50-80% to less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready. 
with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. There are some people who will check a mid-luteal progesterone. The point of checking a mid-luteal progesterone, the middle of the luteal phase or a week after ovulation, is to know that you ovulated. If it's three or higher, you ovulated. If it's not, you haven't. People have taken pregnancy data, like what should progesterone be in pregnancy, and tried to apply it to the luteal phase and saying, oh, if your progesterone is not 10, it's not an adequate luteal phase. But there's nothing to support that because that doesn't need to reflect pregnancy levels. Now, are pregnancy levels different? And the answer is yes. And let's think about this. The moment you get pregnant and that little pregnancy starts to implant into your uterus, it secretes HCG. That's the pregnancy hormone that you can detect on pregnancy tests. Normal implantation is going to happen around five to nine days after ovulation. That's what's considered the implantation window. But at that time, once HCG starts to be secreted from the placenta, that is now a constant stimulus of the corpus luteum. So HCG and LH bind to the same receptors, and now HCG is produced constantly and in increasing quantity by that growing pregnancy. So now the corpus luteum is making constant progesterone instead of making progesterone in pulses. Therefore, pregnancy-level progesterones do have some reflection of being a certain level as better than being lower levels. And I think that is important. When you are not pregnant, then what is going to happen is the corpus luteum cannot survive being supplied by LH pulses from the brain for more than about 12 to 14 days. So after that time frame, that corpus luteum is going to die. Progesterone is not going to be made anymore. And that's considered a withdrawal from progesterone and the stimulus to the body to have a period. So when you get pregnant, no matter what the result of that pregnancy is going to be, that pregnancy is stimulating more progesterone to be produced because of the HCG. Now, HCG levels are indicating a good or a bad pregnancy. So when you are being treated at a fertility clinic and you get pregnant, what is the first thing that we do? We are going to bring you in for a blood pregnancy test. This is an HCG level. And there are different starting values for different time periods which correlate with better outcomes. So what we're really looking for and in clarity This does depend when your clinic checks it. So if we're thinking about checking it at what is considered four weeks of pregnancy or when you would have a missed period, and I'll go over that terminology in a minute, what we are looking for at that time from a numerical value is typically going to be from about 80 to 150 or more. Now, if it's less than that, does that mean it's a bad pregnancy? Not necessarily, but the lower it is, the worse of a sign that it is, because by that stage, you typically should have more HCG made. And this is even more so for IVF cycles when we know exactly the stage of the embryo is that we put in the body versus like an intercourse or an IUI cycle where we could argue maybe the pregnancy fertilized or implanted on a slightly different day than we thought. And the reason why I bring this up is people are often trapped into this idea of 
I had a positive pregnancy test at home. I later went to the clinic and got my blood drawn and they checked an HCG and a progesterone. I subsequently lost the pregnancy. The results came back and there was a low HCG and a low progesterone. So my problem is that I had low progesterone and that caused my miscarriage. Probably not. Now, I did say probably not and not 100% not, but probably not because a low level of HCG is not stimulating the corpus luteum to make as much progesterone as it should. So that is also the feedback by which a pregnancy talks to the body to let the body know if it's good or normal. And if it's not giving a constant stimulus or not rising at the appropriate fashion, the corpus luteum is not going to respond in making enough progesterone. Giving progesterone, pills, injections, suppositories at that time of a low level or at that time of a positive pregnancy test does not make a difference in your pregnancy rates. And studies have shown that given somebody progesterone once they're pregnant and have a low level, doesn't change the outcome. However, there is some evidence that giving progesterone in the luteal phase or after ovulation may help certain people with recurrent pregnancy loss. And so that is a difference, right? You have to know when you're ovulating so that you can know when to start the progesterone. And even though I already said pregnancies that are destined not to make it communicate to the body by having low progesterone levels, that obviously is telling us that there are some people who do not make enough progesterone and it's probably part of what we consider a luteal phase defect. And that is why in that group of people, this progesterone supplementation in the luteal phase did improve their pregnancy rates. But we also have to remember that the very top cause of miscarriage is genetic abnormalities. And when we talk about genetic abnormalities, I know that the genetics can be confusing, but when we talk about genetic abnormalities, we are really talking about aneuploidy or an abnormal chromosome number. And we see aneuploidy increase as we get older. So this is how I describe it to patients. Your eggs, if you're biologically female, have been sitting in your ovaries from the moment you're born. I think we all know that by now. We're born with all the eggs we're ever going to have. We run out over time. And when we're out, we're out. However, the eggs that are sitting inside the vault inside of our ovary are held in a very specific stage of cell division called metaphase of meiosis. And if you're a nerd like me, you remember metaphase, meet in the middle, and you know this is when all your chromosomes are lined up and they have met in the middle of those eggs. And they're held apart by these meiotic spindles, and those are keeping the these chromosomes in perfect position so that they can split evenly upon ovulation. Honestly, this is mind-blowing to me. Why is the body made this way? Honestly, it is such an inefficient system for reproduction that it makes me crazy. I mean, why didn't our eggs just go ahead and split and hang out at that nice stable stage until we were ready to use them? I do not know, but this is why those proteins break down and get damaged as time goes on. So that leads us to have chromosomes that are less stable. And then we're going to fall into the position of having an increase in genetic abnormalities inside our eggs as we get older. Now, most genetic abnormalities do not fertilize or do not implant. And therefore we have lower pregnancy rates as we get older. However, 
we also see a higher rate of miscarriage. And these two numbers on graphs are perfectly correlated. As the pregnancy rates go down, the miscarriage rate also goes up. So it is not only harder to get pregnant as you get older, it is also harder to have a good pregnancy or a live born baby. And this is why that age 35 really starts to become in our brains. It's not that most people are out of eggs by age 35. That is not the case. But at age 35, you now have a significant number of eggs that are genetically abnormal. It is now harder to get pregnant with an increased probability of miscarrying. And we can't change that number. I cannot make your eggs less abnormal. They've already absorbed that wear and tear from your life. There's probably things you can do to prevent them from getting worse at the same accelerating rate. And there's studies to support this. And that's why so many of us are talking about improving your lifestyle or decreasing inflammation, trying to decrease toxin exposure and increase sleep and decrease stress and increase fruits and veggies and what supplements can you take. We're all trying to live in that zone of doing what you can. Now, when you think about what does this mean for you, if you can't reverse the clock, which you can't, and you're getting older and you're having a lot of miscarriages, what are you going to do about it? And I think that's really important, one, to think about, but then two, as we think about what do we do in the face of a miscarriage. So I'm not diving in to recurrent pregnancy loss. I have an entire episode on that. If you have lost multiple pregnancies, there's a chance that it's not just age-related aneuploidy, especially if you are younger. And you 100% should get an evaluation, which will include a variety of things. It will include testing for autoimmune disease, to see your own karyotype or chromosome count, to see if your chromosomes are in the right position or do you have a translocation, and to see if you have any clotting disorders or abnormalities of your uterus. Very specific evaluation for recurrent pregnancy loss. So listen to that episode if you're finding yourself in that position. Ultimately, if age-related aneuploidy is our issue, doing IVF and identifying the normal embryos to put in your body is the best treatment option. So if you have lost multiple pregnancies, you've done this evaluation and we don't know why, you might want to think about IVF depending on what all we find out. If you have period abnormalities that's different or thyroid disease or clotting disorder, different ballgame. All right, but what about that moment when you have now had the miscarriage and what does that mean? So one thing that's always confusing for people is how far along they are and what the baby looks like and what this means. So remember that people know a lot more now about reproduction than we used to, but pregnancy has been around forever. So pregnancy dating goes back well before we understood the concept of ovulation or implantation. And the only thing we had to date a pregnancy on was when you had your last period. And periods came approximately every four weeks or so. And so what that means is that the pregnancy started at that date of the last period as day one of the pregnancy. That means that you are two weeks pregnant the moment you ovulate. Again, you're actually not pregnant at all because there's no egg and sperm together yet. But the moment you ovulate, you're two weeks pregnant. The moment that embryo starts becoming available for implantation, you're two weeks, five days pregnant. And the moment when you would have missed a period or potentially you say, hey, another month has gone by, I don't have a period yet, that would be considered four weeks pregnant. And that is when you'd have your missed period. So you're really only two weeks pregnant by the time you're four weeks pregnant. The embryo is only 
two weeks old. So that's an important distinction in time frame because the embryo is still completely a ball of cells and does not resemble a baby and you can't see anything on ultrasound. And that is the reason why we don't do ultrasounds if you got a positive pregnancy test and you maybe you start bleeding right away, why somebody's not rushing to do an ultrasound is it often isn't telling us anything at that moment. We cannot confirm what is happening. I'm not going to see a pregnancy in the uterus, even if there is one. This is what sometimes makes diagnosing early pregnancy losses really complicated. So if everything is perfect, that pregnancy will develop into a gestational sac with a yolk sac inside of it. So a little sac inside the uterus at around five and a half weeks of pregnancy. After that, I will then see a fetal pole, which is like a grain of rice, and then a flicker of a heartbeat right around six weeks and one to two days. So if I bring somebody in for an ultrasound at four weeks and five days pregnant, I won't see anything. I won't. Now, if I bring you in for an ultrasound at five and a half weeks, I should see a gestational sac inside the uterus. And if I bring you in at six and a half weeks, I should see a gestational sac and a fetal pole and a heartbeat. So if you have bleeding at five weeks pregnant and I don't see a gestational sac, I don't know. Is this a miscarriage in process? Is this a perfectly normal pregnancy that may be implanted late or I just can't see what is happening? Or is this an ectopic or a tubal pregnancy? The official diagnosis at this time period is what we call a PUL or a pregnancy of unknown location. I truly hate that word. But what that means is you are pregnant. You have a positive pregnancy test, but I do not know what is happening at this moment. It could be an ectopic. It could be a miscarriage that's over. It could be a miscarriage in process, or it could be what we consider a threatened miscarriage or a perfectly normal pregnancy with just some bleeding. What is going to happen at this stage is that we're going to check your HCG levels to see how it is changing. So in early pregnancy, we are looking for your HCG to double approximately every 48 hours. And so it's pretty standard. If you had a embryo transfer and you've got an HCG level and it's 100, yay, you're going to come back two days later and it should be 200. And then if it rose normally, we are not going to see you until you're over six weeks pregnant because if everything's fine, there's nothing I can do in that in-between time. Now, if you start bleeding and I bring you in at five and a half weeks and I don't see anything, I am concerned because I should at least see that small sack. I'll check in HCG to see, has it come down? Maybe you already had a miscarriage. Maybe it's stable. Maybe it's rising. And then you will follow with ultrasound to try to determine what is happening. If the HCG is dropping, you're in a pregnancy loss situation no matter where it implanted. It should be followed until it gets down to zero. Unlikely in that scenario, this was so early that there was nothing to do. If this was an IVF pregnancy, we probably would stop progesterone supplementation and just wait and probably see if you get a full-on period and if that helps your hormone levels drop. Now, if your hormone level plateaus, this is pregnancy unknown location. Treatment options here is I need to figure out where the pregnancy is. So if your hormones plateaued, I don't see anything on ultrasound, meaning nothing in the fallopian tubes, no sac in the uterus. I can't just go presume it's an ectopic and take out a fallopian tube. I don't see it. I'm not going to see it in the operating room. So 
Your choices here are going to include an evacuation of the uterus. This can be called a variety of different things, a manual uterine aspiration, a uterine evacuation, a suction DNC. Take-home messages, taking the tissue out of the uterine cavity. If the pregnancy was in there, your HCG level should drop pretty quickly. Okay, they're dropping. It was an abnormal pregnancy, but inside the uterus, I knew it was abnormal because my levels weren't rising. So hopefully that's all I need to resolve it. The other option is going to be to take methotrexate, which stops rapidly dividing cells. Methotrexate is a chemotherapy agent. And so it's used to stop rapidly dividing cells in cancer, but we can also give it to stop rapidly dividing cells. Also a pregnancy is a rapidly dividing cells. So it is a lesser invasive treatment for an ectopic or a tubal pregnancy or a pregnancy of unknown location. So if we know it's abnormal, methotrexate can be an option. Now, if you think it could be in the fallopian tube, maybe because you see it, like sometimes you can see the pregnancy in the tube, you can still try methotrexate over surgery, depending on the size of the pregnancy, if it has a heartbeat or some other factors, there's a list of contraindications. But you can also proceed with surgery. Hey, I see a mass in the left fallopian tube. This looks like an ectopic. We could just go to the operating room and remove the tube or try to remove just the pregnancy and that could be a treatment. But if you fell into the I don't know where the pregnancy is category, let's say you had the uterine aspiration and your pregnancy hormone levels were the same, they didn't drop, okay, it wasn't in the uterus presumably now, now I'm going to get the methotrexate injection. Methotrexate stops rapidly dividing cells. It's a folic acid antagonist. This means you can't get pregnant for three months after you use it, which is one of the biggest downsides. It also just makes you feel like crap. I've received it. I hated it. So I warn everybody about that. And you have to be followed very carefully to make sure that your levels do drop all the way down because if it is a pregnancy in the fallopian tube, it still could rupture and if it doesn't resolve fast enough. Now, sometimes everything goes fine and you come in for your first OB ultrasound and one of two things could happen. Maybe now you're six and a half weeks pregnant and I see a sack with no baby. I could see no sac or I could see, you know, a sac with a baby with or without a heartbeat. It might even look perfectly normal and then you come back later. When we come in, let's say everything looked fine at six weeks and then you come in for your eight-week ultrasound two weeks later and I now tell you, I am so sorry you're having a miscarriage. Your baby has stopped growing. If the baby stopped growing at six weeks and four days, that's the stage of the miscarriage you got to. Okay, you got to six weeks and four days and the baby didn't grow any further. Even though I didn't diagnose it until eight weeks, the baby is the size of six weeks. And that's an important distinction just in how far the fetus got to as far as what could have gone wrong. Now at that stage, you may or you may not pass a pregnancy on your own. And so if you just got pregnant normally and you walked into your OB and you're not on any medications besides a prenatal and they diagnose a miscarriage, depending on what we think your gestational age is and the size of the fetus, you may or may not have the option for expectant management. So if I think you're eight weeks and the fetus is seven weeks and four days, this is a very new thing for your body. And maybe your body has not had the time to try to have the miscarriage yet. So sometimes expectant management can be an appropriate option if you're close to the gestational age we expected. Now, if I think you're eight and a half weeks and the baby's measuring six weeks, the baby has not been alive for two 
weeks plus. So I don't like expected management in that option. It's unlikely to get there because your body has already not done what we needed it to do. The caveat here is if you've been on progesterone, sometimes you're on progesterone because of fertility treatments, because we supplemented you for X, Y, or Z reason. And if you're on progesterone, that can prevent you from bleeding. So if there is a big discrepancy in dates versus size, but you're on progesterone, I sometimes will still say, let's give your body a chance for expectant management and stop the progesterone and see if you bleed and watch what happens. That can be an option. Another option is to evacuate the uterus either with an in-office procedure or with a DNC. This is what we do to essentially resolve the pregnancy the fastest. DNCs used to have a really bad reputation, and we have to remember that technology has changed, and people are still very fearful that this will result in uterine scarring, but the reality is it doesn't. It's very rare for that to happen in a nice controlled setting, especially when the miscarriage has not been there for too long. The longer it's been there, you can get infected. That's considered a septic miscarriage. And that is a completely different scenario. And that can leave an infected uterus can leave you with a lot of uterine scar tissue or retained products of conception. If you don't pass the entire pregnancy, that can leave you with a lot of scar tissue too. So don't be fearful if your doctor says, I want to do a DNC to try to resolve this fast. It is typically done with suction, nothing sharp, and then your HCG levels should be followed all the way to zero. So again, whether that's in office or in the operating room, every clinic is set up a little bit differently. The other option is a pill called Cytotec or Mesoprostol. And to be fair, I do not do this for miscarriage treatment anymore. But that's not saying it's a bad option, but this is a pill that you take, which makes your body like an antagonist of progesterone. So it stops progesterone from being active. So your progesterone levels drop, and then you have a lot of cramping and bleeding. And it can really drag on. It can be painful. And I just find that this takes a long time. And I personally see a higher incidence of retained products of conception. Not saying any study tells you that, but I found that. And so if your body is going to pass it naturally or we stop progesterone and you bleed, very low chance of things being retained. If we do an extraction procedure or an aspiration, very low chance of things retained. But the longer a pregnancy drags on that is not going to result in a viable pregnancy, the longer we have a chance for something to get left behind, have uterine scarring, have infection, have other complications. However, this medication, you can either take it orally or vaginally or both. It's also an option for abortion management. So you can take mesoprostol alone. There's a very specific order of how you do it. Or you can take it with mifepristone, which is another medication, and it's a little more effective that way. But again, I don't love it for miscarriage treatment, although your OB may have great experience and they want to use it. Admittedly, I work with a very small subset of people and I'm very controlling. So most of my patients are going to get a trial at expectant management if we stop progesterone because they're all on progesterone and you bleed and you pass it, we'll follow levels. If you don't bleed, we'll go in and we will do a manual uterus aspiration where we take the tissue out and then we still will follow your levels to zero. When can you get pregnant again or what has to happen? I'm going to stress that you need to get to a negative pregnancy test. And this is because I've seen patients who do have that retained stuff inside the body and they get uterine scarring later. Ideally, your clinic will check HCGs until you see it get to zero. If they don't, please at least take a home pregnancy test. Now, while you still have HCG, it is going to prevent the brain from ovulating, at least for a significant period of time. 
as HCG gets lower, then what we're going to see is the brain will start picking up and ovulating again. So it's normal for that first period to be really weird after a miscarriage. An ovulation, may, you may not know when it happens. And so I don't want you to obsess over it. That being said, you will ovulate before you get a next period. So you could get pregnant and that can be confusing if it's a new or old pregnancy, especially if your hormones weren't followed all the way down to zero. So again, please follow that HCG level to get it negative so that if you have a subsequent pregnancy, we know it's a new pregnancy and it doesn't confuse the picture. This is also why most OBGYNs will tell you to just wait until you get a normal period to start trying again, just so that we can know everything is working normally and fine. If you don't get a period and it's been two months from that miscarriage, you need to go see your doctor. I'm concerned something is wrong. And I've had a handful of patients who did develop Asherman syndrome, which is a complete scarring of the uterus. And this was their sign. They didn't have a period and we had to go in and do surgery to fix their uterus. And the sooner you do that, the better. You do not have to take off three months unless you had methotrexate or unless your doctor very specifically tells you to. Maybe they were concerned about something with your uterus or there was some reason. But typically your uterus doesn't need to heal. It'll be fine. And once you get a period, it's healed and you can carry on. Once that HCG is down to zero, everything should be good for you to try again. There are studies showing that after pregnancy loss, people have a higher chance of getting pregnant in the next immediate cycle. And I think that's encouraging data. It's probably somewhat to do with egg and sperm have have met and they've made it together and an embryo started to implant. And that ultimately is encouraging. So I like that data. I try to say it is probable that everybody who's trying to get pregnant at some point in their life will have a miscarriage. It is way too stigmatized and we don't talk about it enough, which leads us to not know what to do. And often your doctor is talking you through these choices in a very emotional situation. And so listening to this, even if you're not going through a miscarriage or when a friend is going through one can be helpful. The other thing to say is that pregnancy loss can happen at later gestational ages. If you are outside the first trimester, that fetus is so big, it's definitely going to be an operating room based procedure. It may not even be a DNC. It might be what we call a DNE or dilation and extraction, which is just a bigger surgical procedure. If you're later in the second trimester, it might even be where it is an induction type procedure. So if the baby has stopped having a heartbeat for whatever reason, you might take medication to essentially induce labor to be able to pass the baby. These are terrible circumstances and not common, but not also rare. The vast majority of pregnancy losses are due to chromosomal abnormalities and they happen in the first trimester. If you have any pregnancy loss in the second trimester or later, you need to talk to a specialist or your doctor about why, because those are not common scenarios. Having to have a DNE or having to have an induction of labor is a not fun process. And to anybody who's going through it, DNEs are typically multi-step procedures. People who are having a termination for, you know, medical reasons or for abortion are going through this procedure too. It is typically part one with a cervical dilation where you place something called a laminaria into the cervix to help open it up. And then you have the procedure done the next day. This is both with suction and with tools to help kind of make sure that you get 
all of the components of the fetus out. And induction of labor is also tricky because placentas in the second trimester do not like to come out notoriously, even if the pregnancy is no longer making it. So there's a very high chance of needing a DNC procedure even after you've delivered the fetus, which means you have to have two procedures. Same rules apply as far as needing to make sure that those hormone levels go all the way back down to zero. This is probably the patient population I see this happening in where they don't necessarily get proper follow-up. Let's say it was second, late second trimester and they, you know, delivered the fetus. Then they had to have a postpartum DNC to get the placenta because it wouldn't come out. They often are not having their hormones followed to zero and they have a very high likelihood of having retained products at conception, which just increases the potential complication risk and fertility risk later. So if you find yourself in that position, it's not that one procedure is better than the other. Understand that you're probably going to have to have a DNC either way. But the real key here is in the midst of all that you're going through is trying to make sure you follow those hormone levels down afterward. The one thing I want to say as I end this, and I'm actually not going to get time to Q&A today because I really spoke for a long time. So please remember to ask those questions Monday at Natalie Crawford MD or go and sign up for the newsletter so you can see some of them and I will get to Q&A next week. I want you to know that the one thing I wish I'd done differently was tell people about my miscarriages. I miscarried on the bathroom in L&D when I was the chief resident. I miscarried and missed important meetings or outings with friends and never told anybody. It wasn't until I had my ectopic pregnancy that I told anybody. And then at that time, I got such an outpouring of love and support that I really could have used at those other times. But I was of this mentality that I wasn't going to tell anybody until I was far enough along. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. And I'm not saying you should post it on Instagram, but people can't support you if they don't know what's going on. And so allowing yourself to be vulnerable and open up is very important and it can help you. So to your person or your people, whether it's your friend, mom, colleague, partner, family, sister, I mean, I don't care. Open up to them so that they can help you if things go wrong. And it's easier to honestly tell them in the early pregnancy, hey, I got a positive pregnancy test. It's early. Please don't tell anybody. But I just wanted you to know so you could celebrate with me now, but also so that I feel comfortable coming to you in case something goes wrong. And that dialogue really can go a long way because I think the emotional support for miscarriage is something that we've been conditioned to do alone. And it's really something that is better when you let more people in. I'm sending you guys lots of love. I hope this episode helped if you're in one of those stages. As always, you can follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, or you can follow along on the YouTube channel, which is also Natalie Crawford MD. Thanks, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.